Welcome to Boston Venue, the channel podcast. This is the true and complete story of the legendary Boston music club, The Channel. From its shaky launch in one of Boston's grittiest neighborhoods, through the glory years of beer-soaked rock, punk, and reggae shows, from an incredible roster of artists, and its demise at the hands of local mobsters after a spectacular run. A demise that ultimately led to a murder that would take 25 years to solve. This podcast includes explicit language and violent episodes. No sugarcoating and no bullshit. Let's rock. On the last episode, Boston was undergoing a profound transformation. The city was being shaken to its core by seismic cultural shifts. Nowhere was this more evident than in the emerging genres of hip-hop, hardcore, and thrash. As with most music phenomena, the scene's early devotees were young, and they were pissed the fuck off. They felt misunderstood, yet had no interest in being understood. In the early 80s, these new music styles were still very much underground, enjoying little commercial success or popular attention despite their fervent followings. Punk music or hardcore as it became to be called, to differentiate the pure form of punk from the many softer, gentler offerings that were making the scene like New Wave and others. From the beginning, the channel's booking included punk bands. In fact, like CBGB's in New York and the 930 Club in D.C., the channel became a mecca for live punk and hardcore shows. You know, in 1980, when the channel first came on the scene, there was little diversity across the city, either in uh, the airwaves and the radio stations or the live music stations and the nightclubs. WBCN pretty much stuck to rock music. Disco was offered by KISS 108, and there was a black station in Boston, uh, WILD, AM station, but they stuck pretty much to traditional black music jazz, R&B, blues, some disco. Punk was pretty much relegated to college radio stations where the DJs had some latitude. They had some decisions that they could play certain types of music. They didn't have to worry about advertisers or ratings. They played what their customers wanted and what they liked. A lot of times that was punk. Yeah, in the clubs, it was pretty much the same. The Paradise stuck to rock and roll and you know some pop music. The Rat in Kilmore Square, they did punk mostly. Yeah, there was a club in Cambridge called the Western Front that featured reggae on a regular basis. There were a lot more radio stations and nightclubs across the city. Each one stuck pretty much to their particular format. I had a feeling that this punk music and its derivatives had some legs, and it was only a matter of time before it would break commercially. 
Nancy Burrell is a teacher and author who managed, produced, and promoted punk shows and is married to SSD control guitarist Al Burrell. I was really excited about the hardcore and the punk scene. It was absolutely thriving. So, you know, the channel was a big part of Boston for SSD control. It was, in fact, the place where Jamie and Al solidified the fact that they wanted to start a band that was in the parking lot after a Dead Kennedy show. I booked bands, I promoted shows, I managed bands, and I wrote for fanzines. That's how I actually met Al Burrell, who was in the band SD Control, when I bought their record, and it said, SD Control wants to play your city, and there was a phone number, and I called it to have Al do a show. Minus Rhett wanted to play Boston. I'm not really sure if Ian asked me or if I volunteered, but somehow I was put in charge of, of making that happen, and and I wanted to do it at the channel with SSD, and I knew that they would, you know, I knew Minor Threat and SSD would draw a huge crowd. Of course, Minor Threat and Ian and those guys, they never really cared about money, but I knew that the show would draw a ridiculous crowd, and so I was hell-bent on getting them some really good dough. At the time, I worked with uh, Warren Scott, and I was just, like, relentless. I eventually came up with a guarantee, uh, 1250 and plus a $300 signing bonus after 750 paying customers were admitted. SSD was one of these kind of bands that, like, you know, they'd hit the first note, and Al would break all six strings of the guitar, you know, and they always had, they always had some, like, technical difficulties, you know. And But it never seemed like they did at the channel. Like, the channel shows always went really, really well. often better to deal with third-party promoters for these punk shows. These were generally young entrepreneurs that wanted to make money, but they also had an intense love for the music. And they really knew how to tap into a very loyal fan base. They would get them to come to their shows. Sometimes they would even pay to get in. Let's just say we had our share of gate jumpers, rafter rats, frogs, and other characters that did anything they could to try to get into uh, the shows. Rafter rats and frogs? Rafter rats were loyal punk fans, but they were either too young or too broke to come in by buying a ticket. So what they did is they came in during the day uh, ostensibly to play video games. They would play video games. They'd basically make themselves scarce until the house was cleared. They would climb up into the rafters, up into the roof rafters and hide until the house was cleared, uh, the doors were open, and, and uh, then they'd sneak uh, back down without being seen, and they would enjoy the show. The frogs were some kids that, for whatever reason, could not get into the club to see the show, so they'd climb into the rickety boards on the water side of the building, and they'd try to cling to the uh, picture windows, those big, huge picture windows that were on the side of the building, where they could certainly see the show, or at least a portion of the show, even hear and uh, feel the bass vibration from those uh, huge bins by the stage. 
And there were a lot more ways that uh, they'd figure out a way to get into the club. Of course, we didn't find out about all these tricks until uh, years later. Ian Mackay is the owner of Discord Records. The legendary DC artist spent the first few years of the 80s leading the influential hardcore outfit Minor Threat, who would release their first EPs in 1981. They toured relentlessly and first visited the channel in 1983. Later, Mackay was the founder, vocalist, and lead guitarist of another punk powerhouse, Fugazi. The channel was the first time we actually played an actual venue. Boston, of course, has a reputation of being more old-school rock and roll, a little, you know, yeah, a little gangster or something. Never was that interested in it. Like the Rat, for instance, guys who worked out were, you know, tough guys, knuckleheads. Didn't have much interest in punks, especially like hardcore punks like us, which was fine because we didn't have much interest in them either, you know. So it was like we, we were going to do our own shit. We were going to put our own shows on and do our own thing. The fact that we got into the channel was pretty startling, but I don't know how Nancy got us in there. I think that room was a pretty great room to play, as I recall. Some rooms just light up. My recollection about you know playing there was that that room was very it vibrated. It was really a live room. The crowd wasn't a mile away. It was like they're right there and dingy, as most of these, they're black holes. You know, that's, they have a really that's used. The Don Law Company, the promoter, the people who, they controlled most of the rooms, they were not interested in two aspects that Fugazi insisted on. One was all they just shows. But the other thing, which I think was more challenging for them, is we insisted on low door prices. We wanted to do a $5 door. I mean, I'm the one who booked the band, so I know. I would call them about these different rooms because we wanted to play a show in the city, but they would just not, yeah, they wouldn't budge. The same problem with Bill Graham, by the way. Bill Graham presents in San Francisco. Same fucking problem. They're very mob-like. They just, you know, they were controlling their market, and it was considered that was proper. You know, we always wanted to be all ages, and I think that was a real dilemma for most nightclubs at the time, but that was mandatory for us. But most towns, like even like Seabees wasn't all ages. I was 16 and up. The Whiskey in L.A., the Eastside Club in Philly, or and obviously like Pepper and Lounge and those places in New York, they were all 18 or 21 and up. Not only were we not going to play there because we didn't believe in age discrimination, but also Brian wasn't 21. There's a couple of smaller kind of clubs that would they would let you do all these shows, but most of the more circuit-oriented joints like the channel, they were pretty firm. Black Flag didn't have the same position. Yeah, we definitely did. Promoting punk, especially all-ages shows, at a club like the Channel was a whole different beast. As their traditional promo methods began falling short, the next generation of promoters was finding that DIY tactics were working just fine. Crafty promoter entrepreneurs were finding ways to make their shows successful. Sean McNally was a punk music promoter and Channel employee. So promoting the shows was a different animal. We didn't really have any money per se, so we would do as much word of mouth as we could. We would make up flyers, typically 8 by 10 and then we'd uh, put some really crude handwriting together and put all ages on the flyer, the bands who were playing, the date, the venue. And then th those were kind of our main focus of advertising, honestly. We would hang the flyers. We would go to the, the Kenmore Square by the Rat. We would go into 
the pit in Harvard Square, another big hangout for most of the punk rock kids. And we would um, go to the record stores. Newbury Comics was a big one. Strawberries. A lot of kids would offer to make flyers. Like some of the times, we just didn't even charge them to get in the show. They didn't have enough money. We would definitely hit the college radio station. They let us list the shows for free. We would sometimes give them tickets to give away in exchange for mentioning the show. And a lot of the radio shows, ERS, MBR, ZBC, JUL, and Lowell, they'd all play these bands. Often the DJs would come to the shows as well, and you know, whenever possible, let them into the show for free because they were helping us out by promoting the show. You know, we did some advertising, you know, with like fanzines, which again is just mostly local kids putting their own fanzines together. Like Al Quintet, Suburban Voice was a big one. Jonah, Floyd Living Witness, and John Stanley had one called look again. We would do that kind of advertising where we're really tied into this community. Again, the whole DIY thing was really like getting by with as little money as possible, and that way you would keep the ticket prices low, which was important to us. The All Ages matinee became like an actual thing. It kind of spread from there. We were like all friends and trying to help each other out and build the scene up, and then, you know, as it kind of grew, we became a really cool vibe and, and scene nationwide. The number of local and regional punk bands seemed endless, and they all wanted to play the channel. Yeah, new bands, they try to impress by having a very cool press kit. We had them everywhere. There were dozens. Sometimes it seems like there was hundreds of them all over the office. But press kit usually consisted of a cassette tape, all nicely decorated with uh, stickers and graphics, a bio of the band, pictures. Punk bands always had a graffiti-style uh, logo. And it was very creative. The punk bands had the most interesting press kits, I would say. Once the concert is booked, promoted, and advance tickets sold, it's time to put on the show. Punk shows were usually multi-band affairs, sometimes featuring five or more bands on a single afternoon. The loyalty of the fans and the adrenaline-fueled intensity of both the crowd and the performers made hardcore shows in rock clubs challenging to produce. Longtime channel stage manager Andrew Arsenal had to deal with all the details, from load-in to dressing room assignments to turf wars and stage diving. In those days, people going on the stage and diving off the stage into the crowd, this caused a giant problem between us and the artists. One time when Black Flag played, I have no idea how many stage divers were on the stage. There was a lot. And at one point, I had a guy in each hand. My back was to the audience. I was about to throw them off the stage behind me. And a kid came running from the drum riser and body blocked me backwards off the stage. The next thing I knew, I was under the crowd in the mosh pit who were moshing around. There's a lot of stamping with combat boots. And I swear, when I finally was able to get myself up off the ground, I had U.S. Army prints on my face from these guys. And when I was laying there under the crowd, I was like, wow, after all these years in the business, this is how I'm going to go out. Stomp to death by punk.
Stage managing a multi-band show was one thing, security was another. Punk fans and many band members had no use for club security personnel. In fact, early on, there was a declared war going on between bouncers and punks. Dickie Barrett was a young fan before he joined punk bands and eventually formed the hugely popular punk ska band, the Mighty Mighty Boston's. He had been in the front lines of this conflict. The Boston hardcore music scene was part of a scene that like, was inventing bouncers versus the audience sort of thing. I remember one time being there for bad manners. Me and, and my friend uh, Matt Badger, we got chased around the Channel neighborhood for at least two hours by the staff that wanted to murder us. And uh, that went on until we finally made it back to his car, which was parked in the lot. We had to jump the fence to get down to his car. And as we were jumping the fence, they opened the back door and saw us again. And they came running at us. And it was this old Rambler. He owned an old, like, 1960s Rambler. And it wouldn't start. And finally, it was like a, a scene out of a movie finally started as they got onto the car and started pummeling it. We drove away as they were falling off. Channel night manager, Peter Boris, had the responsibility to keep things cool during what often turned into tense situations. Back in the day, when you labeled somebody a punk, it would be somebody that's uh, young, uh, not to be trusted, got to be watched, completely unpredictable. You never know what they're going to do. Running around with a chip on their shoulder, like, don't fuck with me, you know. It was just a really high-energy scene whenever we had punk shows for everybody. At the very beginning, we did have uh, a lot of security issues, and a lot of the locals... They wanted to keep their turf. They felt that they were entitled to be in charge over there and do whatever they want, not let anybody resist them. It was just an immediate conflict between the bouncers and the punks. The attitude of a punk, you know, kind of transformed into a music scene rather than, you know, a hoodlum scene. We got to understand what they were about, that uh, they weren't really here to cause trouble, and they wanted to appreciate their music, their type of music, it just got easier. When we put women on the security staff, it kind of uh, projected the image of more of security rather than kicking ass and keeping things calm. Soon, the channel was doing a lot more punk shows at night and selling alcohol. It seemed that Don Law, the major promoter in Boston, had little interest in these shows, which presented some interesting booking opportunities. The channel became a go-to venue in Boston for uh, these emerging hardcore bands. Bands like Black Flag, The Misfits, Minor Threat, Bad Brains, and The Dead Kennedys, which, by the way, we could never advertise in Boston using their real name. Newspapers uh, would not accept print advertising uh, using the Dead Kennedys' name, so we had to advertise them as the DKs. So these bands, with their uh, confrontational attitudes, remained in the hardcore underground, usually played Sunday afternoon or Saturday afternoon shows all ages.
there were other punk groups uh, that became more commercial, more acceptable, because they lost a little bit of their hard edge, started to crack commercial radio and MTV playlists. Bands like the Ramones, the Cramps, B-52s, and X became reliable nighttime sellouts. Another sellout was Iggy Pop, one of glam punk's most iconic figures, who recorded a live album at the channel with video of him stage diving into a wild mass of adoring fans. Punk shows are becoming mainstream and profitable. As hardcore distilled the more brutal and aggressive elements of punk into something less jagged and confrontational, there were many other punk offshoots that reflected a wide array of cultural mores, with prefixes like thrash, death, glam, Christian, Afro, and queer, just to name a few. And then there was New Wave, often danceable and more approachable than some other punk spin-offs. What was once a fringe musical style now had multiple points of entry. The scenes sometimes clashed, but mostly fed into each other, and fortuitously were about to get further help from the airwaves. Julie Kramer was music director and DJ at WFNX in the 80s. She is currently a rock photographer and hosts the Midday Show on the internet streaming radio station Indy 617. So punk rock was always uh, a genre that was played and highlighted at WFNX. It wasn't uh, ostracized because it was heavy or maybe not of the norm because we were not of the norm. We played a lot of the extreme punk, but again, you played it within your shows. We always spun older, heavier songs, but you would spin the Stooges and the Sex Pistols and the Buzzcocks and all those bands. The new round of punk rock, the DJs would have their choice and create their own shows around, you know, what was going on, uh, you know, their own personalities, and a lot of the shows influenced what the DJs were about. As punk music was losing its hard edge, it was embraced by popular culture, and money was a big part of that culture. Things got a little bit more corporate. I, I, I feel like it got more corporate where you're not just playing whatever you want anymore, right? Now someone's telling you what to play. A lot of the stations already that was happening where you're now playing what off a computer system. The music's already set for you and you're just pumping it in. I think radio became completely non-creative. Corporate greed took over and radio stations became super homogenized and everything sounds the same. One of the most influential punk bands ever was the Sex Pistols. Lead singer and creative force of the band, John Lydon, a.k.a. Johnny Rotten, found himself without a band when his controversial bandmate, Sid Vicious, who had been called the Prince of Punk, met an untimely death due to a heroin overdose in 1978. John recovered quickly and put together a post-punk band called Public Image Limited, or Pill. As a musician and multi-instrumentalist, John Lydon was brilliant but undeniably quirky. In 1981, he declared Pill an avant-garde performance company and played the only performance that year at the Ritz in New York. That show, now widely known as the Pill Riot Show, descended into chaos as Lydon had decided to perform the entire show behind a giant movie screen. The show was stopped prematurely when audience members started throwing beer bottles at the screen and began to charge the stage. In 1982, they performed two sold-out shows at the channel, one at night and the other an afternoon all-ages show. Lisa St. John, 
longtime channel graphic artist, shares a vivid memory of the All Ages show. When Public Image Limited was booked to do an All Ages show, I happened to be in the club reception one morning when a teenage girl came in to buy tickets. She was telling me how much it meant to her that she was going to be able to see this show and how much she loved John Lydon. And as a massive music fan myself, I could totally relate, and I was particularly happy for her because I could see in her face that this show was a dream come true. So I sold her the tickets, and she left happy. I attended the Public Image All Ages show, too. I was standing by the main bar watching from a distance as John Lydon took control of the stage and the audience. He was wearing a white button-down men's shirt with the distinction of being extra long, of the body of it hanging nearly to his knees. He eventually took the shirt off and he balled it up like he was going to throw it into the audience. The kids went nuts and they all surged forward. And he teased them a little bit, but then I could see him singling out one person that he wanted to give the shirt to. And it was that girl, the teenager that I'd sold the tickets to. She reached out to take the shirt and again the crowd mobbed her, forcing Lydon to pull back. He then demanded that everyone give the girl some space and she was able to get a bit closer to the stage. John Lydon then knelt down and reached for her hand, putting the shirt firmly in her grasp and mouthing, have you got it? And she nodded and he let it go. And for me, it was one of the most magical exchanges I'd ever seen on that stage. Her face said it all and there's no doubt in my mind that she still has that shirt and a treasured memory that I think really could have only happened at the channel. So as time passed, punk music became a lot less aggressive and in-your-face. Bands uh, began to graduate, some bands began to graduate to much larger venues. I mean, some bands played uh, stadiums and arenas, signed multi-million dollar record contracts with major labels. Punk music pioneers and veterans of many channel all-ages and nighttime shows, including Husker Du, Minor Threat, Sonic Youth, Black Flag, and others have inspired bands like Nirvana, Pearl Jam, Smashing Pumpkins, and many more, and continue to influence popular music to this day. On the next episode of Boston Venue, hip-hop, rap, afropop, ska, reggae, and juju. Black music representing many different cultures that span the globe were another vital part of the channel's programming. Music featured in this episode is The Kids Will Have Their Say by SSD Control, Filler by Minor Threat, and Cash Out by Fugazi. Intro music, John Butcher Axis. Contributing storytellers in this episode, Ian Mackay, Nancy Burrell, Sean McNally, Andrew Arsenault, Peter Boris, Dickie Barrett, Julie Kramer, and Lisa St. John Bennett. Interviews of Ian Mackay and Nancy Burrell by Nate Holman. Boston Venue, The Channel Story, was conceived and created by Harry Boris. Executive producer, David Ginsberg. Produced by Chachi Dupret. Written by Harry Boris. Contributing writer, David Ginsberg. Edited by Christopher O'Keefe. Recording engineer, Tori Lamb. Audio production by Tony Baglio and Dan Tebow. Graphic designer, Lisa St. John Bennett. I'm your narrator, John Laurenti. Don't forget to subscribe and tell your friends to check us out on thechannelstory.com or on Facebook at Boston Venue, the channel podcast. Leave your comments and share your stories. And if you like the show, leave a review. We really appreciate it.